Well, good morning. So, uh, thinking about the song um, where it is said, streams of mercy never ceasing calls for songs of loudest praise. And it's just, it's very amazing how God is so merciful that by nature mercy itself can be taken for granted and how God has organized salvation to be in just such a way where it is the easiest thing to take for granted. Just the abundance of the mercy we have, the, the depth of that mercy. And it's just, it's very humbling. And I'm so thankful that we can gather together and sing these songs and encourage each other and partake of the Lord's Supper that, that reminds us of the depth of God's love and, and just how gracious God is at the expense of his son. Um, it's so humbling. So this morning, um, I'm going to be continuing to talk about uh, fundamental lessons that teach us how God identifies himself and how we identify with God. And every, every lesson, I think, so far that's been specifically on this theme has involved some form of listening to God's word. That's, that's at least been either a minor point or a major point. Um, we've looked at, you know, what is the Bible as a whole, how the, the Bible is 66 volumes that are specifically set apart to accomplish this purpose, to identify who God is, this God who is holy, who is set apart. But also it teaches us how do we identify with God as well. Um, so we most recently talked about repentance and just the nature of repentance from Isaiah 55 more specifically. And the grand invitation of Isaiah 55 is really to listen. But not just to listen to where we're hearing words, but it's like where we're feasting on those words and being changed by those words. We looked at how Isaiah 55, it's a very famous chapter specifically because it has the phrase where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than yours. Sometimes that's you know, used as almost like a slogan religiously in a lot of like, you know, pictures or you know, images. And it's not intentional in, in that context to be making the point that God is far away, but rather that God is near that God is actually offering his thoughts. He's offering his ways. As the rain comes from the heaven and comes down to the earth to water it, so God sends his word down to us. So the lesson today is going to be on listening and receiving instruction. One of the most vital parts of our relationship with God, how do we understand who God is? How do we understand him in truth? How do we identify with God? How do we ensure that the way that we're identifying with God is based in truth? Well, that has a lot to do with listening. God has identified himself through words. And so it requires that in humility and in, in, in genuineness of heart that we're actively seeking to listen. And I was talking to um, Jason a little bit about this in text. And one thing that Jason said is that there's just so many things that are written about the subject. And I'd like to go to Proverbs chapter 1. This is going to be the basis of the lesson. Um, God, I think, gives us some very basic principles that if these principles are applied... And if, if these things are understood and if they're, they're, they're being enriched and, and, and exuding out of our hearts, these are principles in these first seven verses of Proverbs that I think will equip us to not only be able to listen humbly to God in, in a sincere and, and good way, but also to listen to other people as well. I think that really the key to listening to people in a way that is genuine is we first learn how to listen to God in a genuine way. So I want to read these first seven verses, and this is going to serve as 
kind of the template of the lesson. We won't only be looking at these verses, but everything really is going to be coming back to the things said in these verses. So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Um, so let, let's read these verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's a lot of goals that are written here, and these really overall, I think, are generally God's goals. You know, God's not just trying to get us, again, as was stated, God's not just trying to throw information at us and, you know, get us to memorize facts and and just equip us to have a a large, like, dictionary kind of knowledge of God's God's things. But rather, if you look at verse 3, God's goal is that we receive instruction, that we gain wise behavior, that we learn righteousness, justice, and equity, and prudence, and knowledge, and discretion, that we'll hear in verse 5 an increase in learning. So really the the first point is who can listen and receive instruction. That's really going to be the first major point. Who can listen and receive instruction? So in verse 5, notice obviously it says a wise man is going to hear. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. I mean, that's, that's fairly apparent, right? Obviously, someone who has wisdom will listen and gain understanding. But look back at verse 4. I think here really is a key thing that's, that's easy to miss. Who is it that all of this is for in verse 4? Notice, to give prudence to the naive. Your translation might say the simple. To give to the youth knowledge and discretion. When you think about that term youth, don't just think about somebody young. Think about as well maybe the concept of being immature. That might be helpful as well. Thinking about that this is wisdom and discretion and knowledge being given to the immature. Um, So what does it mean to be naive or simple or immature? I think maybe something that can be important as like a qualifier is that I don't think this is talking about those who are naive and simple and immature but like unwilling to accept it or like unaware of it so for instance like in my life um you'll probably not find this very hard to believe if you know me well um but when i've when in in my past when i was a lot younger sometimes people would call me immature and they weren't saying that as like a compliment like wow brian you know like proverbs one like to the youth you know god is giving knowledge Usually it was like an insult, that somebody was trying to say something hurtful, so they call me immature because I was just acting like foolish. And somebody naive, you know, you don't usually think about that as like an attractive attribute, being simple-minded or being naive. Usually that's describing somebody in, in my mind who like doesn't understand basic things, maybe somebody who's like dangerously ignorant of their circumstances or their environment. Um, somebody who doesn't maybe have like a grasp on even common sense, somebody who's really just sometimes frustratingly useless. Like they just don't act the right way. They don't do the right things. They don't say the right things. They don't think the right way. And I just want you to think like, what if somebody described you that way? Like what if somebody said like, you know, Bryant, yeah, you know, when I think about Bryant, I think about somebody naive, simple-minded, and really immature. Like, that would be terrible. That would be, like, the worst way to be described. 
But what I want to convey in this first point is how important it is to truly see ourselves this way. Notice in verse 1 who wrote these things. So Solomon. Obviously Solomon had some pretty dark, low points of his life, but he famously has a shining moment in his life. That generally when you think about Solomon, as much as we think about his low points, there is a shining moment that Solomon, I think, is very famous for. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 3 to look at this moment. 2 Kings chapter 3. Really, the point of... I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, it'd be good if we actually looked at when Solomon was alive. Um, 1 Kings chapter 3. So this is before the temple was built. Another famous thing that Solomon is known for. And this is when God had appeared to Solomon in a dream and he offered to Solomon whatever he wanted. It was basically a, a blank check. And Solomon's reply to this is very interesting and it relates to what we look at in Proverbs. And I want you to try to pay close attention to see if you can catch it. How did Solomon view himself in 1 Kings chapter 3? Um, I'm going to be looking at verse 7. So this is Solomon's response to God giving him this blank check. And that's in verse 5. God, in the last part of the chapter, says, Ask what you wish me to give you. So in verse 6, Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in, the, in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So notice in verse 7, really 7 through 9, the ways that Solomon refers to himself. He didn't just see himself as a child in the Hebrew, not that I'm some Hebrew expert, but I mean, if you just kind of look up this word in like a lexicon or on the internet where you can see the original language and the way it's formed, these are two different words that Solomon uses. He, there's, there's one word that describes a youth or a child or a boy but then there's this other word in front of it qualifying that, and that's the word little. So he didn't just see himself as a youth or as a child, but he makes sure to specifically say, like, I'm not just, I'm, I'm a young child. Like, as far as children go, I'm just a little one. And then in verse 7, more surprising, I do not know how to come in or go out. Really, he's describing, like, he doesn't even understand how to do the most basic things. Like, can you imagine if somebody approached the front door and they were just standing there and like eventually just kind of like go out and like, is you okay? They said, I, I don't know how to go in here. Like, what do, what do I do? It's like, well, okay, well, you open the door. And it's like, how could somebody not understand something so basic? And so the idea is how Solomon sees himself. He can't even accomplish the most basic tasks. He's so naive, so simple-minded. He needs the most fundamental guidance in his life. And then in verse 9, he acknowledges, you know, I can't judge or discern this great people. What makes this more interesting, go back to Second or First Kings again. First Kings chapter 2, look at verse 9. I want you to notice how David, his father, refers to Solomon. Before we read this, I want you to think, do you think David was a perceptive person? Like, when you think about David, do you think about somebody who is a good judge of character? 
And I would say yes. And mind you, this is at the end of David's life. And so if there was ever a time where David would have wisdom, where David would have an understanding, where David would have a strong perspective of character, it would be at this time in his life. And to make that maybe a little more clear even still, David at this time was giving instruction to Solomon to judge those who have proven themselves ungodly in their character. So one of these would be Joab, commander of David's army, who had betrayed David's trust on multiple occasions. And in giving Solomon these instructions, look at verse 9. Now therefore do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. So notice this. David, a man of great perceptiveness, a man of godly perceptiveness, he refers to his son Solomon as, for one, being wise. Although in chapter 3, after this event, Solomon refers to himself as somebody naive. Notice he says, you are a wise man. So David sees Solomon as somebody, a grown-up. So not only is he wise, he's, not, he's no longer a youth. He's being charged as a king with great responsibility. And he's saying, you're mature enough to handle this as a man. And yet in chapter 3, Solomon refers to himself as a little child. And again, this is like this shining moment of glory in humility, right? So who can, rec- who can listen to and receive instruction? It's somebody who, because their fear of the Lord, because of their awareness of God, because of their awareness of God's wisdom, because of their awareness of their own sin, of their, their weaknesses by sin, they see themselves as needing help, even in the most basic and fundamental ways, but they acknowledge God is the source alone of that help. I guess to go on just a little further, go back to Proverbs and go to chapter 30. Um, just kind of a interesting fact. Proverbs is the accumulation of multiple writers and their wisdom, their godly wisdom, obviously, since it's written by inspiration. And in chapter 30, you have wisdom written by this man, Agur, or Agur, not sure how to pronounce that exactly. But this man, Agur, I want you to notice, again, this, this person who has this rare place, not only in God's word, but a rare place in a book of wisdom. And I want you to see the first things that he states about himself. It's it's an interesting confession here in the first part. Look at just verse 2 and 3. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. And verse 4 as well. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garments? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and his son's name? Surely you know. So you notice this man who, as you read on, has actually meditated on and discovered some pretty extraordinary things. His words aren't here just to make this declaration, but he shares meditations on things that are actually very profound. But is this person in love with his own wisdom? Does he feel like he's attained to some sense of self-enlightenment because of his meditations? No, it's as if the more he knows of God, the more he recognizes he does not grasp, that God alone grasps. Think about this too. What what can we know except from God? What can we discover except God allows it? What can we know except for God to give us the capacity to even think through things in our minds? 
Everything that we can know, everything that we can discover is not even based in our own merit, but only in the fact that God graciously and mercifully even allows the discovery of knowledge in the first place. Go back to Proverbs chapter 2. The reason this is important, this still relates to the idea of who can listen and discover knowledge. Solomon and this man, Agur, they recognized the value of wisdom for one, but because they recognized how they lacked wisdom, they recognized their need to seek it out and listen. So not only is this a person who recognizes their own simplicity of mind, naivety and immaturity in reflection of God, but they recognize the value of what they still do not yet have. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My heading says, The pursuit of wisdom brings security. Right. So he says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commands within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry out for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for a hidden treasure, or for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Look at chapter 3 as well. And the heading here says the rewards of wisdom. The idea is the proverb writer, who is Solomon, is spending so much time first establishing the value of wisdom, the need for wisdom. But to the writer, he's making the appeal. This is something that you need to recognize you do not have enough of. And if you recognize its value and how you just don't have enough, you're going to seek this more than you'll seek anything else and crave it more than you'll crave anything else. So chapter 3, look at verse 13 through 18. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast. So just pause here for a minute. Does anybody remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? It's like a kind of a fictional fable that they tell the children. It's the idea of like there's this emperor who prides himself in his clothing um, so much that he neglects his own nation and eventually there's these con men who come into town and they boast about how they can make like the most beautiful and extravagant garments So the king brings them in and they tell them that they have the ability to make clothing that if you're stupid and if you're unfit for your position, they're not going to see your garments. And so, you know, the king, to keep up pretenses, you know, pretends like he can see these garments and then everybody else, you know, aware that if if they act like they don't see the garments, then they prove themselves dumb and unfit for their position. Everybody kind of goes along with it. And eventually, as the king is parading around his town and everybody's keeping up their pretenses, eventually some child says, he's not wearing any clothing. And eventually, like, more people begin to actually admit that they can't see it and the king himself realizes it. The idea is wisdom, knowledge, the way that the Proverbs convey this, and along with all of Scripture, we're all lost by nature in our sin. That because of our sin, what, we've, what we're guilty of is getting lost in the delusion that we're knowledgeable, that we have maturity, that we have prudence apart from the Lord. And what God is striving to fundamentally do is unclothe us, to get us to realize that we're not as clothed as we think we are with wisdom. 
And when we're stripped of the delusion, then we can finally understand our need to listen. And God, as the Proverbs convey, is ready to pour wisdom upon those who seek it. So with that, the next point, I want to be very practical. Um, I think with listening, there can be some very challenging things about listening because God's way of teaching just as is in the beginning of Proverbs, is to challenge us with wise behavior, righteousness, equity, justice, things that we need to recognize are foreign to us, things that will require dramatic changes of thinking, dramatic changes of behavior, dramatic changes of belief and perspective. So how can we listen to correction, to rebuke, whether it's from God's word by personal reading, whether it's just from a sermon or a Bible class, or even from personal conversation, when somebody brings something up to us that maybe we weren't prepared for, maybe we didn't even realize we needed to hear, how can we be prepared to listen even when it's difficult? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, I think you see this in Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. And just kind of to generally convey something important with Paul's relationship to the Corinthians, the Corinthians were in a very bad place when this letter was written. There were a series of sins that they were actively involved in. There were sins they were actively tolerating. There were fundamental beliefs that they were changing. And in the beginning of the letter, instead of Paul just going right into all of these things, he instead focuses on the very principle we're considering. He brings the Corinthians back to a condition of heart where they're willing to listen. 1 Corinthians 2 Verses 1 through 9 is what I'm going to read here. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, or yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So he goes on, like in verse 14, to mention that the natural man cannot accept the nature of this teaching, this teaching that defies the wisdom of men. One of the difficulties and the challenges with receiving godly instruction is just by nature, God's instruction is hostile to the world. And one of the most important things in Proverbs, when it talks about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, part of the fear of the Lord, and in the Corinthian letter here, in the context of what Paul is conveying, it's not just that my thoughts have less value than God's. It's not just that my ways have less value than God's. And it's not just that my ways and my thoughts are empty or vain. It's that what Jesus proves in the cross is that the wisdom independent from God is not just vain, it is hostile to God. It's self-destructive. It Not only does it not accomplish anything, it actually works against the very confession by nature of what it appears to be. So we recognize that this wisdom is not a wisdom that we can find in the world. And the problem is, for me, just like the Corinthians, is I tend to be drawn 
to the things of the world. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? So the Corinthians were in a position where Paul is challenging them to recognize they needed to recognize an attitude in themselves and a way of thinking that they did not recognize needed to change. So what about you? And what about me? Would you think of yourself that you're ready to receive difficult correction or have things pointed out that you may not even realize are actually working against your ability to grow in the Lord or mature in godliness? How do you respond when you're confronted with those things? What if the Corinthians got this letter and became defensive? You know, who, does, who does Paul think he is to talk to us like that? You know, like he spent all this time with us and here he is talking like this as if he's some kind of great authority over us. He's just like us. You know, and in the second letter that Paul wrote that we have in 2 Corinthians, you can see that the Corinthians, even in that letter, in the midst of all the qualities of God's grace that had been growing in them, they were still drawn to worldly and arrogant teachers. Another challenge in this, this is very practical. I know this kind of seems like an application potentially only for me. But I think a challenge is actually for teachers. I think teachers can easily be unapproachable and arrogant. Uh, Paul, look at the beginning of chapter 2. He did not come with superiority of speech or of his own wisdom. He determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And in verse 3, what was his demeanor? This, this is where I think it becomes relatable for all of us. A demeanor of weakness will listen. A demeanor of strength will not. When you think about Paul and his demeanor of weakness and fear and trembling, do you get the idea that you could talk to Paul? Do you get the idea that you could probably have some difficult discussions with somebody like that and that it would be received and heard and you know, be genuinely considered? You know, I, I get that impression. A demeanor of weakness will listen. And a challenge with somebody who's teaching, a challenge for me, is not thinking that because I'm teaching that I have all the answers or because I've studied things that you have to listen to me and I'm no longer in need anymore to receive instruction or study things out, right? And I've even had experience where I've attended churches in the past. I think of one example in particular where a brother and I attended a congregation that we were aware was not a sound congregation. And the brother who was preaching had done a lesson on authority. And so we thought, wow, what an opportunity. Like, the congregation here has some things they're practicing that we're concerned about, and so, you know, here's just this great open door. So after the lesson, we approached the person who was teaching, and we wanted to talk to him about um, uh, God's authority and application of what we saw was not from Scripture. And he immediately got angry. And as we continued to talk, he actually got angrier and angrier until we actually couldn't talk anymore. On the contrast, there are certain older brethren who preach who, in the way they speak, not only publicly but personally, are incredibly approachable. They don't just say from the pulpit, you know, question what we practice, you know, come up to us, please. They don't just say that because it's a sweet-sounding, sound doctrine, Church of Christ sermon phrase. They mean it. 
you, you approach them, they'll be patient, they want to study, they prove they're willing to listen. Here's the thing, in James chapter 3, it mentions, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will incur stricter judgment. You know what somebody teaching should recognize? A teacher should embrace judgment and critical judgment. God will scrutinize teachers for what they say. I'm a young guy, right? And some of you do really good to catch things I say that are strange or don't sound right or even things that potentially don't even sound like they're sound things to affirm at all. And that's good. Teachers should be accustomed to being scrutinized for their teaching. And I'll tell you this, if there's a teacher who verbally will affirm sound doctrine from the Bible, but is proven unapproachable, and they're standoffish, and they get angry when they're approached about something they've taught or something they're doing, that person is lost in their heart, even if what they're affirming from the Bible is sound. And so we have to have an environment like Paul in chapter 2, where we have demeanors where we accept our need to listen, all of us, that nobody's exempt from needing correction, admonition, and to be challenged. So with this, some other practical things. The Corinthians, there was an array of things the Corinthians needed to be corrected on. And so I just, I just want to bring up some things that I just challenge you and suggest that are things that can be sensitive, that we just have to recognize we have to be open to receiving advice or correction or instruction about things that sometimes we may not be prepared for. I think for one, a practical challenge is not becoming embittered against the person correcting you. Um, it's really hard to correct somebody, really hard. Not just in the moment and the preparations leading up to it, but then afterwards, for me and for others I've known, it can be easy to almost become so full of anxiety that I approach that right. Is the person going to hate me now if I ruin the relationship? I know I didn't say that right. I know I could have said it better. Maybe I should have said this. And when somebody responds poorly, it just it hurts so badly. And when I've been corrected, there's, there's a specific time I can remember where a brother took me aside and it was something I was not prepared for, but he was very strong in how he corrected me. He was very right in how he corrected me. And I remember walking away from that and you know what popped into my mind like rapid fire? Hateful thoughts toward him. Rapid fire. Who does he think he is? He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't understand why I did that. And just rapid fire, I mean constant barrage of thoughts making it about him. And it was so difficult recognizing it's, you know what, I can't think that way. God commands me to be gracious and what he said was right. First challenge, I think, practically for all of us, when you're corrected, be careful to not make it about the person who's approached you. Listen to what they've said. Be careful not to become embittered against that person. Recognize the love and the risk that's been taken. And I think it can be easy to make it seem like the greater obligation is on the corrector. I don't think that's what you see in Scripture. I don't think it's the idea that we have to like navigate this maze where we have to flawlessly say things. We need to be considerate and gracious, but we also just need to be willing to listen. Inevitably, we're not going to say things flawlessly. Inevitably. We have got to be so merciful toward each other. We've got to recognize that you know, when somebody is taking the risk to say something difficult... You know, it's, God is the only one who speaks perfectly. And we are such imperfect, broken ambassadors of his message, and we just need to be so gracious toward each other and give careful encouragement to the one who's chosen to take the risk to correct. Um, and I think with this, the importance of having meaningful conversation. 
For me, because I'm a people pleaser. Uh, I remember at UPS, there was somebody I worked very closely with, and he was, he was a big jokester. Um, he basically never said anything serious, ever. And I remember trying to engage him in serious conversations. It never worked. And I think a person can really show themselves unapproachable and disinterested in instruction or correction, and they can really push people away when it's like there's never anything meaningful being said. So I think another challenge of correction is show yourself approachable by being willing to have more meaningful conversation, right? I know we can obviously have fun with each other and joke around. That's, that's fine. I imagine Jesus was very easy to be around. I imagine Jesus laughed his disciples. But when you were around Jesus, you were kind of enclosed in a box of constant meaningful conversation, right? Um, some other challenges. Sensitive things that I think can be difficult to receive. Politics. And I don't mean political views. Um, I mean when somebody is being divisive about their political views and somebody tells them, maybe you should tone it down. <laughs> maybe you don't need to maybe be so open or aggressive with some of these things. That can be, I think, very sensitive and sometimes go poorly. And so not having that is something that you have reserved away from this. Modesty for both men and women. I do know of examples where women have been talked to about the fact that they're revealing their bodies much too openly, and they they hear it well, and they make changes. More commonly than that, um, I hear of, um, usually these conversations are women with women, um, but I have more commonly heard of women getting very angry, uh, very angry about that subject being brought up. Um, And I know of women who at other times seem very humble, but when that's brought up, just fly off the handle, right? So would you be willing to listen if something like that were to be brought up? Controversial subjects in Scripture. Uh, You know, we're studying serving the Lord's Supper, whether or not that's able to be something scripturally we can do over and over again on Sunday or whether or not it's something we should only do once. Um, Does it make a person angry and fly off the handle when something different is being said? Are they willing to listen? Um, Lots of subjects in Scripture. The, the, The Corinthians, you have to think we're in such a mess And yet there are such sensitive subjects that are contained in that letter. The head covering is in 1 Corinthians 11. How do the the Corinthians handle a subject that for us can be so divisive? Um, The Lord's Supper, the resurrection, taking each other to court, just all sorts of things. Nothing was off the table for the Corinthians and they need to learn to just listen. Marriage. uh, For Eve and I, are we we willing to listen to the advice of people older than us? Or is it, you know what, we're just going to do what we're going to do. Why don't you mind your own business? Or are we willing to listen and receive instruction? Raising kids. My dad has said something that I thought was very disappointing. He said, from his experience, generally, parents are totally unwilling to listen or want any advice at all of how to better raise their children. What a shame. You know, and he said that from trying to give advice and he's the kind of person who gets very paranoid about how people are receiving things and wanting to be very gentle Are you willing to listen if somebody were to suggest that there's a different way? Um, Involvement in a church's local work. That's another hard subject. Sometimes it can be, don't you know how busy I am? Don't you understand the things I have going on? It's like, well, you know, I'm just trying to suggest something that maybe the scriptures clearly say we need to be as invested in the local work as, as we can be. So, again, nothing being off the table. You know, can we talk about difficult things? Can we receive those difficult things without it becoming divisive 
or endangering our relationships with each other. Finally, and just very briefly, love endures painful listening. You know, I think love has a lot of practical behavioral applications. But did you know that how we listen may be one of the most fundamental components of what makes love what it is with God? You know, it's kind of interesting. God is love, right? And yet, how has God, who is love, communicated with us? Words. How we listen to God is fundamental to how we then listen to others. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 2. This might seem like a very strange place to go, um, but I hope it'll make sense uh, as we just talk briefly about it. Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel was a prophet who, just as we're talking about, was communicating through word to a generation that we'll see as we read. God just was very open to Ezekiel. This is a very stubborn people and just tells them right away that they're not going to listen. And I think there's some key things that God told Ezekiel that, for one, show God's love for the people, but help us to understand how to receive that love ourselves and give it. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Notice this. I am sending you to them, and this is God talking to Ezekiel. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus is the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Do you get the impression that Ezekiel was going to have to be tough? That he was going to have to have kind of a a tough heart? In chapter 3, God tells Ezekiel that he's made his forehead hard like flint, hard as their hearts. To think usually having like a hard heart or a hard forehead is used in a really bad way, in a bad context in scripture. But here, what God is telling Ezekiel is you're going to have to be tough. You're going to be saying things to the people that they're not going to want to hear and they're probably not going to listen because they're a proven rebellious people. Here's the thing. God has entrusted the responsibility of maturity and growth to our willingness to speak his words to one another. God has entrusted the growth of maturity to having the love for one another where we're willing to have those meaningful and sometimes very hard conversations. And here God couldn't find anybody to do it, so he appeared to Ezekiel directly in this great glory on this throne. And the simplicity of what he says is, I just need someone to speak. And whether they listen or not, I just want them to hear what I want to tell them so they know that a prophet has been among them because love endures painful listening. Do you think it was hard for Jesus as he challenged the religious elite around him? As everywhere he went, even with his disciples, he was constantly striving to fundamentally bring people to see God in new ways they hadn't before. When he told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's, do you think that that was painless for Jesus to say those things? When we begin to live this way, I think it becomes clearer why Jesus so often would seclude himself to pray. Because of how easy it can be to get worn out. Look back at Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6. He says, it's going to be like thorns and thistles are with you. It's going to be like sitting on scorpions. How does that sound? 
Somebody says, for the rest of your life, whatever job you have, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like you're walking through thorn bushes and there's no clear way. You're just kind of trudging through it. And then when you sit down, hoping to find some relief, oh, there's scorpions waiting for you who are going to be stinging you. So you're just, you're trapped. But love toughens up. Love not only endures the painful listening, love recognizes, you know what? We are so broken by our sin, each of us. And because of that brokenness, we are inevitably going to hurt each other. And it's, it's sad. It's, it's a tragedy. But that's what sin does. Sin makes it inevitable to be pained. Sin makes it inevitable that as I try to help you to grow, you're probably going to disappoint me. As you make an attempt to help me to grow, you're probably going to disappoint me. I am quite positive that when brethren have tried to come to me to help me and correct me, my response has probably been very disappointing. And they've needed to exercise great mercy to me. Go to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and this is where we'll close the lesson. One of the principles that I want to convey in Romans 15, he's going to admonish the strong to bear with the weak. You know, and it's not as if the strong see themselves as strong. I think it's just the idea of like Ezekiel. There are those who are willing to say the hard things and are mature enough to continue doing that without becoming bitter, without falling away, without giving up on their brethren, without attending the nearest church in the area because the brethren here aren't responding in the way that I like. There are those who are tough enough in their love and humility to keep going. The key thing is, though, in the midst of all of this, we've got to be willing to humble ourselves and go to the person when we fail to respond in the right way and apologize. How do the strong bear with the weak? How do the weak make it easier for the strong? How do the strong make it easier for the weak? Is when you prove yourself willing to humble yourself. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Are we willing to listen? Through this chapter, in verse 14 and 15, he would express to them that he had confidence they were able to admonish one another. That is one of the core things that equips us to grow in a relationship with God, but with one another. It's what keeps our relationships from becoming just a nice social club where we kind of learn to be friends and talk about the weather and the sports and the current events. Learning to admonish each other is what keeps us rooted in good, godly fellowship. We can admonish each other, but will we? I leave that to you as the invitation. If you're here and you need the prayers of this church in any way, if you're not a Christian and you see your need to respond, please respond with urgency as we stand and sing our song of invitation.